Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listen in, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with comedy writer and director Ben S. Highland. I'm on a mission to help you unlock your creativity. I'm sharing my journey as a musician, actor and writer, as well as offering online content like guitar and songwriting tutorials and chat about creativity. I'm doing this because I know how important creativity is for mental health and I believe everyone has a creative spirit. I want to help you find yours. Join me at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lane Music. Thank you. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good, thank you. Have I interrupted anything important to talk to you today? I can see some storyboarding potentially behind you there. It looks quite interesting. I, I have been storyboarding, yeah. I've been doing I've been doing a little bit of storyboarding on my laptop. So, yeah, I've been, um, it's always a welcome break when you're just locked in a shed um, just drawing pictures of people to have a human interaction every now and again. So that's great. It's a welcome, a welcome break. <laughs> Good. So what does a normal sort of writing or, or storyboarding day look like? And what's the space that you've got? You say, is that a shed kind of at the bottom of the garden? Is it a specially, specially built space or is it something you've uh, taken over or converted? The shed came with the house um, and I um, insulated it and put MDF on the inside and just bought a bunch of rugs and chucked them on the floor to try and make it um, usable in winter. But I still have several heaters scattered around me for when December, January, February hits. But um, yeah, it's a shed. I was very lucky actually, because the guy that had it before um, had a uh, uh, run wires under, under the garden. Oh, and cool. so I have, I have Wi-Fi in here and I have a, um, you know, electricity and I have everything that I need. Um, to be able to work and function um, as, as if I were in an actual house and not a little wooden box. But um, yeah, I've tried to make it look homely and nice and, and warm and welcoming, but um, you can see the, well, people listening can't see, but I've done a terrible paint job on the ceiling and <laughs> it's all a bit ramshackle. But um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice space away from where I live. Yes. In ha- metres, it's important. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was going to ask about that. I mean, I'm interested to hear people's about people's working spaces anyway, particularly given the events of this year when so many people are working from home when they don't normally. Um, so a couple of things with that. I guess you would have done anyway had it not been for the events of this year in terms of writing and, and creating, thinking about stuff. Have you always had a separate space to do that? Or have you had situations where it has to be the same space that you're living in and cooking in and all the rest of it? <laughs> Um, yeah, well, when we first moved in, it really wasn't, uh, you know, I've been here five years now and it took a good year to get this into a decent a decent space that I could use. And it's always difficult because there are distractions in the house and it, and, it's, and there's that kind of psychological separation, I suppose, of, of, of a living space versus a workspace. And, and, um, and actually in, in previous jobs, when I um, worked in marketing in a different life, um, there were periods where I did work from home and I, I, I always found it very difficult <laughs> to be honest with you. So yeah, just literally having this, you know, I, I, I shut the back door and walk to the shed and it, it does feel like a very separate space. And mm-hmm. I intentionally 
have a hard drive in here that I leave in here so that, um, you know, if I have the temptation to do a bit of work at 10 o'clock at night, I either have to come to the shed or I don't work because it is important for me to have that separation between home and work. Yes. Yeah, sure. So do you keep office hours generally then? Yeah. It depends what's happening. If there's like a looming deadline, then yeah. But generally, I try and um, drop my lad up at school and then come straight to the shed, pop in the house for lunch, and then and then come in for dinner at sort of five-ish. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, I've got a five-year-old, so unfortunately dinner is very early. But um, yeah, I, I try and keep those hours. But there are times um, when I, when there'll be a deadline with a bit of writing or just a meeting I've got coming up that I need prep for that I will um spill over but yeah i try I, I try and keep it you know nine to five where, wherever i can but not always and has that changed this year i mean because obviously it's the same for a lot of people they've had to work from home and they wouldn't have done otherwise but i guess you were kind of in that frame of mind anyway is has that side of things changed much so i guess that the being out and able to film perhaps is different this year than it may have been yeah well, yeah, I mean, it's, I haven't been on set since February, March, right? You know, right before um, before the first lockdown. But um, apart from that, it's not really changed. I mean, the childcare issues when schools were shut, it was mm-hmm. um, it was more kind of splitting my time between my my son and then allowing my wife because she works from home as well, so allowing her that time to um, not just be on full time childcare, and we kind of split that as much as we could. But largely, in regards to work stuff, it's not changed. The only thing that has changed is um, I did used to like to try and get in London, um, you know, once or once or twice a week or so, just to have meetings and meet people face to face and have that human interaction that you don't get um, sort of secluding yourself at the bottom of the garden. So that changed, but you know, we adapt. We jump on Zoom. We do all those little bits, but. Yeah, largely, largely the the workflow hasn't really um, changed as much as as, as for people that might have had to go into offices and, and do that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. And have there been any projects that have come up that may not have happened had it not been for the events of this year? So some people I've spoken to have had chance to work on a project that was in the back of the mind, but they couldn't look at it, or literally things have come up. I'm thinking of one actually that you've been involved in, which is the angry quiz guy, which. Was yeah, that an idea sure. that existed anyway, or did that come completely out of the situation we locked down? Yeah, that came that came from this situation, and it's one of those things where um, you know I was I was working with Mike Beddoes, uh, the producer and one of the writers on that, and um, and we kind of discussed a little bit, I suppose, the idea of of making something in in lockdown. But I was we were both fighting it quite a lot because a lot of stuff had come from these Zoom chats and that kind of format. And it felt like within a month, it had already been done to death. Yeah. Um, and it was really only when the idea came up, Angry Quiz Guide, I contacted them and we started talking about it. And, and it, yeah, it essentially, it came from it not only creatively from a, um, an initial idea or concept, but the people that we managed to get in it and the people that we managed to get involved, I think, I think don't get involved in it unless unless this is happening right so unless they have unless people are kind of a bit bored and want something want a creative outlet and want something to do you know I don't think that you know Nick Helms and 
uh, Nick Helm and Rachel Stobbings and Amit Shaw and the rest of them probably probably do this on a normal weekday unless unless you know the world is exploding around them and they want something to do so definitely came from um from the situation and and therefore i think a lot of the people got involved for for the same reason as well mm. which is great in a way isn't it and it's sort of i think Amazing. a similar thing's happened for me on this podcast i think perhaps as people i've spoken to who the whole fact if we can do it over the phone or we have to do it over the phone or over zoom or whatever yeah. and maybe they've maybe they've got a bit more time on their hands than they would normally it's it's sort of been quite a perhaps quite advantageous in that sense i guess tell me what is a normal writing day like then how many something i was interested to ask writers and stuff is how many projects are on the go at the moment and what various stages are they at because some people i know prefer to have one thing that they're totally focused on others will have various things in various stages or fizzing away so how does it work for you what's the best method well i've only really just cracked what my best method is interesting yeah for many many years and i think possibly again because of what's happening that's that's kind of worked itself out in my brain but mm. i mean this is obviously i'm just gonna look over my shoulder obviously people listening can't see what i'm doing yeah. but um yeah at, at the moment there's probably about 10 different things on the go um i've just got to ask about that dog is that a real very well behaved dog or is that a pretend dog because it, he looks no, real, my, but he ain't moved for ages. No, <laughs> my my actual dog won't wear a deer stalker hat. So this is a. Oh. This is a <laughs> I can't see the deer stalker. Oh, yeah, great! Is a I got for a film many many years ago, <laughs> and didn't have the heart to sell it on. No, you wouldn't, um, would you? It looks amazing. And it's you know it's really good for the shed as well because it sits right next to the door. <laughs> yeah. And, and if anyone were to break in, the first they'd see is the dog, and I think <laughs> it is it is very very lifelike. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so at the moment, um, I've just um, written a feature film, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that I'm also storyboarding. Um, but as you can see from this kind of board behind, I've got kind of different coloured post-it notes, and so I've got uh, two, four, two, four, six, seven feature films that I have on the board, um, one of which I've just written maybe three of which are just kind of basic ideas that are kind of ruminating and I'm allowing just to let breathe and um, two of which I've written treatments for. Um, below that, I've got four short films that have all been written. And below that, I've got four sitcom ideas, two of which that are pilot episodes written and they're currently out on, on submission to various TV channels. Um, and two of which are kind of, again, I'm just, I've got the nuggets of an idea and they're just sitting on the board in the hope that they will somehow sink in and develop mm-hmm. um, as, as they're just kind of in the environment that I work in. Um, so the way that I'd work is my main focus at the moment is the feature that I've just written and trying to get some storyboards down for that. So I can have conversations with the producer about uh, the tone and the style and, and he can go away and kind of work out budgets and that kind of thing. That's kind of the next step for that. Um, and it's just kind of helpful for me to be able to board stuff and just have a un- better understanding of what it is I want to make. But I'll do that for a bit and I'll get bored because I can't just draw endlessly all day, every day. And I'll turn around and I'll go, well, I've got this on the board at the moment, which isn't the feature film. It's a, I've got a giant whiteboard just to the right of my desk. And that's another film that I plotted out. And I might take, 
I don't know, 20 minutes and look at that board and get it clear in my head about all these different beats I'm trying to hit and these different mm. scenes I've added. And um, I might open my laptop and, and work a little bit on the treatment for that before I maybe go back to the boards or maybe look at another idea behind me and, and kind of flip between them, really. Um, it is, I've, I've learned that um, it's important to have more than one thing happening at any one time because you don't know which one's going to take you don't know which one's going to sort of take off and kind of you know go into production first or get investment first or that kind of thing so i try and i try and keep as many things going without necessarily working on them all at the same time if that makes sense mm, absolutely definitely i always find that really interesting because as you say you'd never quite know how one thing's going to land do you and and they tend to once you have an idea and put things out there. Sometimes things can have a life of their own, can't they? Which can be yeah. long or short, or tragic or <laughs> exciting. They'll all go off and do their own things. Um, would they be the way that you expect? So you know, if you have a project that you think this is going to be the one, this is going to be great, this is the best thing I've come up with. Does that necessarily be the one that has legs and other people agree on, or or does it go no. a different way? Yeah, it's normally the one everyone hates and everyone rejects that's your favourite. You know, and it is so difficult because it's such a subjective subjective yeah. thing, right? So you go, you know, I've written this thing and it's the best thing ever written and and it's probably the thing that isn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> um, I've been quite lucky. I work with a, a couple of different producers and they're generally um, very supportive of my ideas and, and I'm able to bounce ideas off them and kind of generate new ideas from that. But um, yeah, that that's why I've got multiple things going because, you, you, like you say, you just don't know which one's going to be the one that takes off. Yes, and and you know it's just important to keep them keep all the ideas moving forward in some form, even if it's just on a post-it note behind you. That for me is an active project, even though I've not thought about it for two months. It's still there. It still exists. It's still kind of the the genesis of an idea that might be, you know, I, I might get a call from. Um, one of the producers that I work with saying, oh, there's a new brief from this channel. Do you have anything that is suitable for the whole family? Or, you know, and I'll look at it and go, actually, yeah, there's this thing that I've just got an idea for, but let's develop that one. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so, yeah, I, I honestly don't know what the next thing is right now from, from all these ideas, but it's, but none of them, none of them are boring to me. <laughs> They're all they're all pretty exciting. They're all pretty good. They're all kind of um, things that I want to make. So um, I'm kind of up for anything, really. And when you said they're all things that you want to make, one of the things that I struggle with, with with projects that I'm doing is this, as you say, having something to one side that might just be an idea that could last months or years before anything more happens with it. Something more may never happen with it. But there's this, I think as you get more experience, you get more used to this. But there's this idea of, so for me, it might be, there's this song I've written, it's got to be the one, or there's this idea for an album or this character that I want to play, whatever it is, it's going to, you know, I have to do it, I have to do it. And of course, they don't always come about straight away and something else comes up in the meantime. But I think being comfortable with that and being available to it. And it's interesting that you mention about uh, like opportunities in terms of pitches as well. And it's like, oh, I have got an idea for that from six months or 10 years ago. An idea is never really wasted, is it? And they can kind of cross pollinate each other a little bit i guess as well can't they you might have project a which needs something to finish it it's like well there's that idea that somebody mentioned 15 years ago that might just be the conclusion of that film or whatever so 
never chucking things away, I think, is quite important, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, an interesting thing is I, I, I sometimes find myself, um, uh, especially with kind of short form stuff, mm. I, I'll have an idea and I'll write something just so I can forget about it. You know what I mean? Like I think I, I really need to write this and I'm writing it going, I'm, I'm never going to make this. <laughs> if I put it in a script and put it in a folder and it's there, then at least I'm not going to be, you know, ruminating about it and thinking and, and, and you know, it's not going to be keeping me awake at night if it's on paper and it exists then. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't really matter too much if it, um if it gets made or not. I mean, I made myself um, a bit of a rule a few years ago that I would, I wouldn't um, worry about making loads and loads and loads of short film content. The, the main thing for me is that I always had just one thing on the circuit at any one time, um, just to kind of keep going to festivals, to keep networking, to keep um, creative. Um, to keep my name out there as well, I suppose, as, as someone that kind of reappears at various yes. festivals, especially in the UK, and um, and that was the kind of rule that I have. So, this, you know, on my on my hard drive, there's probably 50 short film scripts that won't get made, and there's four up there that I hope will get made at some point. But um, but you know, I I, I tend to really um, try and be honest with myself about which ones I'm making and where I see them landing as opposed to just going, well, I could make 10 films and spend hundred quid on each one and, and they might be all right. I try and I try and focus on what the best one is for that particular moment in time and, and where I see it and how I see it helping me, I suppose is important as well. And do the practicalities of things fall into that as well? So I guess for the moment, lots of filmmakers thinking, hmm, how can we make a film that's going to have a tiny crew and one or two cast who don't have to touch each other or, <laughs> or sit very close together? Like, and, and often for creativity, those limitations can be really helpful, can't they? Because the problem with, with writing and with film is, yeah, it could be it could be in space and we could have a cast of 5,000 if money is no object. But actually having the limitations means it's it's not a complete blank page. You know what you've got to hit and you know what you're trying to achieve. So how often does what get, what gets made land in terms of the, the practicalities of it, or is that not the right way to go about it? No, I, I think it is. And I, and I think that, I think that often those limitations create um, situations and create storylines and create um, setups that, might even be better than if you could do it normally because you're really having to get creative and you're really having to um, work within certain parameters. And I think that can be a really good thing sometimes to, to be able to do that. I mean, I've entered quite a few in my time, I've entered quite a few kind of um, 60 hour film challenges, you know, where you kind of, you get given a film title on a Friday, mm-hmm. a line of dialogue and maybe a prop. And then you have to write it, in the early hours of Saturday morning, shoot it on Saturday, edit it on Sunday, and then deliver it on, on Sunday evening or Monday morning. And those kind of those kind of things really, really kind of push you and test you and 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 get those creative juices flowing quickly. Um, so I think that's a really positive thing. In regards to kind of COVID, I mean, I haven't really considered it in regards to COVID too much. I suppose I've done my COVID 
related film with with um well series with angry quiz guy um doing seven episodes of that there there was a situation earlier this week where for this feature that i've written um uh initially um the producer adam smith said he he loved the idea that i was that i was working on and i said shall i kind of hone it in you know are, are we keeping an eye on budget we want to make something you know under a million but not you know I, I don't know a few hundred thousand or something right so we could potentially realistically get something made um so still micro budget stuff i initially he said go with the idea because it's very kind of studio canal you know you can i reckon um this could be an amazing film so so i wrote it as though it was you know, a six million pound film, and it didn't yeah. really help. Of course, now we have the draft. He's like, right, what can we? <laughs> how can we make this cheaper? And so I had this um, car chase that I wrote initially, <laughs> um, which is obviously very, very expensive. And just yesterday, I rewrote it, um, focusing on um, two children playing with toy cars at a school. <laughs> the car chase initially passes. And the cars are the same colours as the cars in the actual car shows. So actually you've got a little girl, girl you know, pushing a toy car around the corner going, Ree! then it cuts to like an extreme close-up of, of the guy's face and the car going, ah! you know, lean to one side. And so I've wrote this scene, which is, um, you know, which I think is a lot funnier. You know, I've written a comedy and I think it's a lot, lot funnier than it would have been if that financial limitation wasn't yeah. played upon the script. So, I, you know, and, and that's great because you can go, well, if we had six million pounds and it would have been a, an exciting car chase. But now we have a funny car chase, which is probably save 50,000 pounds off the budget just by just by really focusing on 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 how to how to cheat it, I suppose, and how to how to make it cheaper. But in, in a in a way that people aren't going to watch it and go. Well, they didn't have any money to make this car chase, you know? <laughs> so that's kind of, uh, um, I suppose, a recent example of, of where that's come up. Those kind of limitations kind of push you to do something that you maybe haven't seen before, or yeah, or um, excites you, I suppose. And so much more interesting from my point of view than just a car chase, <laughs> actually, because it's a much more creative idea. And there's so many great stories from. All kinds of creative things, but films. Imagine you think of the whole Monty Python Holy Grail thing. It can't afford the horses, so we'll do the coconut gag. Which oh, I is, didn't know that was the reason. That's yeah, great. it's ridiculous. <laughs> but it's like, well, okay, what can we do? We can't afford the horse. so and all of that stuff. And like when the Who were making Tommy, and there's all these great backing vocals where they're singing cello, 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 just because they can't afford an actual orchestra. So they just so <laughs> just, but that's so much more interesting than that. Yeah, all yeah, those. Yeah. You know, those barriers you either give up or you do something more interesting. I think it's fabulous. Um, you mentioned on the background there with the storyboard that you've got the different kind of stages of going through things. So I guess there's like the initial idea, mm-hmm. the first draft, <laughs> the collaborating yeah. with someone and getting their opinion. Which mm-hmm. of those is easiest to you and which of those is the most enjoyable? I would say... Okay, so the easiest part is the first draft, but I'll say that with a caveat, <laughs> and that is that I, uh, again, I've I've only I've only really just learned what my writing um, process is, 
after many, many years of just sitting down and trying to write a feature film and getting to page 40 and going, uh, I'm ready to end it now. Is this long <laughs> enough? <laughs> you know, only kind of only just being a few pages into the second act and realizing that I just didn't have a story. So the, the thing that I've just written is going to sound a bit bonkers at first, but bear with me. Um, I wrote this feature film in two weeks. So really, really quick turnaround. But what that doesn't factor in is the five months prior I planned it. So I find I find the the writing of it, uh, you know, from opening a um, you know a blank page in final draft, I find that easiest. But purely because um, before I get to do that, I'll have beaded the story out on my whiteboard. I'll have written a treatment. Um, what I like to do is when I have an idea for a film, I've got a folder on my desktop, which is just dedicated to that film. So um, if I have an idea for a character or a line of dialogue or a scene in particular, I'll just get in there and I'll just start making notes. I also have the same um, on my mobile phone. I'll have an app, um, just well, just a notes app on my iPhone. And I'll have a separate note for each and every project that I have mm. going just if I'm, I'm in bed at night or if I'm walking my dog or, you know, wherever I, if I'm away from my computer, basically, I can just quickly, um, you know, jot down whatever the note is. So by the time I have, um, I start writing, it's kind of already written because I know exactly what happens in every scene. I've got a document on my laptop that I can refer to. I've got the whiteboard behind me that literally has every scene written down in detail I've got I've got like a 15 to 30 page treatment, which has kind of sporadic bursts of dialogue throughout and, you know, scattered throughout as well. So I think that's the most enjoyable part for me, because by the time I get to that point, it feels like it's already been written in my head and on various different source documents and, you know, all over the place, really. Um, so I'd say that process. And the reason I do that. Um, it's because I do kind of want to make sure I, the one thing I hate and it's a necessary evil is redrafting. Mm-hmm. I find it very difficult. I find you know, I, it's the most challenging part, but I think, well, at least if I put the time in, if I put a lot of time into that first draft, you know, two weeks to write, but five months to prep, then it's hopefully going to be at least structurally sound enough that, if someone says, well, what about this? I can say, well, actually, you know, and, and you know, I've got I've kind of got it quite clear in my head um, that it is pretty solid right from the off. And of, and of course, then there, there are creative suggestions about characters and about motives and about um, maybe scenes that are missing. But hopefully it just provides me um, it, it gives me less work after the first draft than it does. If, if I were just to do a vomit draft and, and just get something out on the page and then it'd just be kind of messy and horrible and, and, and needing a lot more care and attention after the fact. Is that a process that you've arrived at through a bit of trial and error, I guess? Not being able to finish a feature film. Yeah. You know, literally just sort of going... Where's the rest of my story? Yeah, I can't do this. Like, it's, this is impossible. Like, how am I supposed to finish this? You know, how am I supposed to um, kind of build a career and I can't even finish a, you know, a 90 page screenplay or whatever it is. So, um, and, and it was kind of, 
I did come across it by accident, probably because I had several projects on the go, so that I was doing a little bit of each uh, time, and things were taking. You know, when I say it's five months prep to write this feature, that's not working on it every day. That's working on five or six different projects, you know, throughout, and actually just going, well, this one's ready. This piece of fruit is ready to be picked. I can start writing it now. And the other ones can take a backseat for a while whilst I get a first draft on this one. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask you if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it and writing a review on your favourite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all-powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows the people are listening. Thank you. We talk quite a bit about writing there, but of course you're also directing, I think, if not all of the films that I'm aware of that you've done, then certainly the majority, I think. So do you think of those as quite different jobs and quite different skills, or is it all part of the same same thing for you? Um, Obviously they're different, but you know what I mean. Is it is it yeah. presenting the same creative idea that you've written and you're directing or is it it's an extension of yeah for sure because you know once you've gone to the trouble of writing something you you kind of pretty much know it inside out yeah Um, so you kind of know how it feels and how it looks but you know at the same time i feel like um at least on set the job of a director is to kind of understand the story and understand the characters but be prepared for actors to bring something completely unexpected to elevate it. You know, the everything that I've certainly in recent years, everything that I've made has been dramatically elevated by performances, mm. you know, on the page to performance for sure. Um, and I don't fight that, you know, as, as a director, I am, um, I'm a member of the audience watching a, watching a film. And it, and if it works, if it makes me laugh, or it makes me cry, or if it you know does whatever, I'm just I'm just there to facilitate that and say that's brilliant. Let's let's move on, or should we try something slightly different? But um, but generally speaking, that that's how I kind of see directing. Of there was a quote I can't remember who the quote was from, but it's so true. It's like um, you know, direct, it might have been it might have been a talk with Neil Marshall. For some reason, that's ringing the bell. But he said that. Um, direction is 90% casting you know if you get that right then then the people that you cast are going to bring so much you know and really kind of uh, you know the amount of times um, of a film called Quiet Carriage that's just gone online the uh, um, people always comment on how good the writing is well Emma Sidi improved 90% of her stuff <laughs> And and I'm like reaping the benefits of that because of course it's brilliant because she's so good at improvising and she's so good at that side of things. So, um, but that's all that's all come from her casting and her performance, you know. Mm. Which is interesting in casting itself. Then, so you, would some of these things be written with somebody in mind, or have you cast after the event? Does it vary? It will vary. I, I um. You kind of shouldn't. That's what I'm always told. You shouldn't really be writing with someone in mind because you, you're just setting yourself up for, for disappointment. Yes. You know? <laughs> um, 
Now, with with the thing, with uh, sorry, the short that's currently on the circuit and um, taught radio, that was written for Julia Deakin, and it was written and um, for Piers Quigley and Tim Key, and we just got lucky. Had you worked we with stopped. any of them before, or was that literally a kind of dream? Nope. Yeah, amazing. We just, I just really liked them, and um, and I'd literally just binged um, the uh, the Tectorists, the Mackenzie mm-hmm. Crook and um, thing, and, and Pierce was in that. And every time he was on screen, every time he went off screen, I wanted him back on because <laughs> he was, the character Russ was just hilarious. And um, but I'd never really seen him before that point. I mean, he's mainly a theatre actor, um, and Julia Deakin is just Julia Deakin, and I've always been a fan of hers and um, ever since spaced one of my lockdown things has been catching up with well, re-watching all of spaced again i did all of peep show and all of spaced at one point during yeah. the height of lockdown it's like yeah there's a reason i binged all these they're fantastic yeah yeah and then tim key is just i mean he's just brilliant he's just a, a comedy genius and it, we were very lucky to get him but you know it, it was one of those just very unique situations where people just said yes and we just and and you have to have that sometimes you, you know you have to get lucky sometimes and and unfortunately for us um yeah people just people just said yes to it so yeah great um and those shorts that you mentioned there quite courage and talk radio what are the advantages with the short i've i've heard i think mike mentioned it when i had him on the podcast actually that they're a lot easier to program for festivals for example which I guess it's quite an important consideration. I suppose they're quicker to make maybe as well. Maybe they're cheaper. I don't know. As a form, is it something that you do sort of out of necessity or is it a form that you actually really like? Yeah, I love it. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no, there's no longevity to it from a career perspective. You know, there's no real money to be made. Um, so you have to, you have to, you know, some people kind of look at them as a calling card. Mm. I, I, the reality is the reality is you're not going to be able to make a feature film every year because they're so damn expensive and then people are so unwilling to put money into unknown talent and kind of make a big huge financial risk on that kind of thing um i think that shorts are a really good way to kind of hone your skill as a director and as a writer and every every kind of element be it creative or technical i suppose you know mm-hmm. through the entire crew to the entire cast um there was the, the reason i've kind of persevered with shorts because um really early on making films i kept going to various talks and and i kept hearing this term uh you know what's your directorial voice you know, what's your, who are you as a director? What's your voice? And that just confused the hell out of me every time. I just didn't, I did not have a clue what it meant. And, and I kind of went through, um, I went through a really long period of making the wrong films. Mm-hmm. Um, because I suppose because um, I wanted to be taken seriously. Right. So, so you kind of make stuff. So, you know, I was looking at, films that won BAFTAs and won Oscars and and I was making films that were really um, hard hitting and I was making stuff about domestic abuse and human trafficking and um, 
and childhood poverty and things like that really important issues and the films did fine you know they kind of um you know went on circuit and they did their thing and that was kind of it and i i, I knew that i wasn't particularly happy making them you know it wasn't i wasn't getting any joy out of that and it wasn't until i came kind of back around to comedy and made quiet carriage and then started writing comedy that i thought I find I think I finally get it now. I finally understand uh, when people say, you know, what kind of films you make, what's your voice, what you know, why do you create stuff? It's like, well, I want to make people laugh. That's that's it. I, you know, I I want to I want to bring that joy. And and there are play and there's definitely a, a place and filmmakers that do really great hard hitting stuff, really important stuff. You know, cause issue led stuff. But it's just not me. But it took me a decade to work that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So if I hadn't had kind of 10 years making short films and going on the circuit and navigating that and working that out, I might not have landed on that conclusion and I might not have written a comedy feature that we're hoping to get off the ground. So it's kind of, uh, you know, I played the long game unintentionally (laughs) and, um, uh, you know, until I found out what I suppose, what I enjoyed most and what I was best at. Because the the funny thing is, sorry, this I'm rambling now, but the funny thing is, all this time, I wanted that validation, and I was making things that I thought other people thought were important, and it wasn't until I started making stuff that I wanted to make that that validation and that traction started to come. So it wasn't until I made a comedy that I got into Encounters Film Festival. Yeah, and Norwich and Bolton and aesthetic. You know what I mean. So it yep, wasn't yeah, until I, exactly and I think that, that becomes transparent when people watch films. They can really tell if a director is passionate about something and they really love what they're making. And I think that comes across in the film because it kind of oozes love, I suppose. Yes. I, I don't know. That's a really naff way of putting it, but you know what I mean. Like you can tell if a filmmaker's faking it or you can tell if a filmmaker's really kind of into what they're doing in that particular piece. Yes. I'm glad you said that because that was going to be my follow-up question. The two things from that is like, is there still that stigma about comedy compared to serious stuff? You know, the serious stuff wins the awards. It's unusual for a, a comedy to get the best picture Oscar, you know, that kind of thing. It's almost as if... Well, comedy is a bit light; it's a bit fluffy. When we all know that actually, it's the hardest. Well, I think anyway, it's the hardest thing to be involved in because getting a reaction where you make somebody laugh in the same film where you might make them think or might make them cry is pretty fucking difficult. So actually, it's really hard to do well. It's there's a lot of bad comedy around. It's that's easy, but to do it successfully is difficult. So that's the first thing was that part of it. But I think you've answered that. You know that legitimacy that that we all beat ourselves up with. Well, I was just going to say just to add to what I said before is, you know this kind of stigma about comedy not being as important. And I think that, you know, when you're making stuff again, you've got to think to yourself, does it matter to you as a creative, you know, it, you know, what is your, what is your drive? Okay. That, so maybe come award season, those things, comedies aren't as well received, or maybe, um, people don't discuss it in the same, even on the short film circuit, you know, I've been to, um, you know, I've been to a screen of very big festivals. Uh, I won't name the, the name because I'm about to say something negative about it, but they, they had the, uh, the drama shorts and afterwards there were Q and A's. Then they had the comedy shorts 
and there were no Q and A's, as as though uh, these filmmakers didn't deserve it or the. It what can you learn? What can you learn from them? Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, the, the perhaps is um, a stigma about it, but at the same time, if you're doing something that you love doing, do, do you care? Should you care? Should you, if people, you know, if, if you're making stuff you want to make and you're doing it and you're doing it well, um, and it doesn't win a festival, but you know, 200 people in the cinema are wetting themselves with laughter, then that's your job done, you know. And, and you know, you say comedy's for you seems the hardest, but I always think that comedy is is just the hardest to please everyone. Mm. So you can, you can come out of a, a drama and you might not enjoy it, but you can still say, and that was important or that story had to be told or I didn't know that. And I learned something and, 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 and that way there's, there's positive, there's positive ways of, of, of some of saying, of describing something that you didn't necessarily like. Whereas if you come out of a comedy, you laughed or you didn't laugh. And it's, and it's that black and white, because if you didn't laugh, then fundamentally by definition, <laughs> it didn't work. That didn't work. It's right? almost like you get a, you get a prize for sitting through a serious film that you haven't enjoyed <laughs> almost yeah. because like you, you've watched it and you've got the message or whatever, but you're right with comedy. It's not that, is it? But then one of the things I've sort of focused on with a lot of the things I do, a lot of things, conversations I've had is not everybody is going to be your audience. And that's great actually, because you don't want to just sort of be the middle ground where most people can say, yeah, that was okay. You want people to say that was shit that offended me. Or you want them to say, I love everything about that. You know, it's those polar reactions that are the important thing because if something's just meh it's kind of like well could have been anything else nothing worse, nothing worse is it than just, yeah, it's all right it's all right you know but it could have been anything it's music <laughs> but the other thing i was going to yeah. ask about that was was it the comedy that was your initial thing that made you think i want to be involved in film i want to do film because because for me with acting and with music you go through these different stages with it, don't you? You want legitimacy and you want to do what you th- you think you should do, what other people suggest that you should do. And then you get to this point where you're doing what you're good at and then you enjoy and you sort of go, well, I've become what got me interested in this in the first place. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. if I make a mu- music that sounds a bit like some of my heroes, well, that's because they're the ones that inspired me to do this. And what's the point of trying to sound like something? You kind of head towards what you wanted to be. I wonder if that's the same thing for you. Was it comedy and... And that sort of stuff that got you started. Um, if so, why do we run away from it? It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's really interesting, and you're right, actually, because the first, the first film I made was a comedy, and then I made a string of comedies afterwards. And a and a good friend of mine, um, best man at my wedding, actually, he um he's a uh, visual effects supervisor now, and they're doing very well. But he um he I remember he said to me, "You should make um." you should do some serious stuff, you know? And I was like, why do you think that? And he was like, I, I just don't think you're very funny. Right. <laughs> this is like, you know, this is a really good friend of mine. And, um, and, and so that's kind of what set me on a different track in, in a way. But what's really interesting, I think is, um, is he was right because the stuff when I was first making comedy, it was awful. It wasn't funny. It, you know, genuinely it was stuff that, a 20 something year old would make and think was funny. And that's fine because I was 20 something. And now, you know, I'm 40 later this year. And I'm not saying I'm not 
in, in any way saying that my my comedy now is a lot more mature and sophisticated but i think it's it's there's probably more thought gone into it it's probably not just like a bunch of gags and people farting or you know a dog having a poo in a park or whatever i think that i i possibly have lived a bit more and have a lot more life experience so the comedies that i'm making um are better and they're funnier um but yeah it, it is interesting that that's that is kind of how it all started and then yeah like you say you kind of run away from it try to be taken seriously try to be try to find um you know people please in a way i suppose or or chase a claim and and you know all that kind of stuff and realize actually that you just want to make funny stuff because that's m- the most important thing to you is, is making people laugh so yeah the, the there must be definitely something deep in the subconscious that pushes people away from away from the ultimate goal i suppose yeah it's interesting isn't it and then sort of on that then i always like to ask people i think you kind of touched on it already really what's the definition of success for a successful project or a thing that you've made how do you how do you judge it as a success or not or or, or do you does it matter i used to i no longer do because it, it's it's too stressful you know what once once you've made something and once it's out there it's no longer it's no longer yours to decide whether it's good or it's bad or whether it's worthy of acceptance at this festival or that festival or whether a commissioner wants to put it on their tv channel or anything like that you know once you've done something it's out there and i think that i think that um once you kind of come to terms with that then it makes the whole process a lot easier and it alleviates the pressure. I mean, one one really good thing about life in general, but about filmmaking, is the benefit of hindsight. Mm. Because you can say to yourself, that film didn't get into that festival and be devastated or disappointed or it didn't win an award or it didn't get what you know whatever the kind of expectation was beforehand. But I can look back now every film I've ever made and I can see how it led to the next thing. And that's not always obvious in the moment, but, you know, you know, working with um, Amit Shah in um, Quiet Carriage, well, that only happened because two films before I worked with Rebecca Grant in a film called Padlock. And then that film, Padlock, I developed a relationship with Rebecca Grant and then she starred in Safe Space, which was a film about human trafficking. And that, that was, you know, a lovely film to make. But then after that, we made Quiet Carriage. And of course, Rebecca knew Amit. So we had kind of a soft introduction to be mm. able to go ahead and, and get Amit involved in the next thing, which was, you know, he was great in it and really elevated it, same, same as Emma City. But, you know, I can look back at every single project and I can... I can link back why it was a success, even though at the time I probably was thinking, how disappointing it hasn't, you know, done A, B or C. Actually, everything's led to where I am now. And regardless of how successful, um, you know, talk radio is, because that's the thing that's at the moment that's, that's doing the circuit, in two years I'll be able to look back at that and I guarantee there'll be there'll be a link to something where someone agrees to be in a feature film because they liked, you know, 
the film I did with Julia Deakin. And it will be it will be something like that. But I don't know what that is now. But um, I've certainly stopped worrying and stressing about um, any kind of expectations because they're, they only lead to disappointment. And if anything positive happens, then it's just a lovely, a lovely bonus to, to having made a, having made a film that you're really proud of, you know, that's a great way of looking at it. Um, and, and so true as well. And of course, everything you do is a learning experience, good or bad. You know, you need to go through them to get to the next thing. I think you touched on it there in terms of actors and casting and stuff. How important for anyone's career do you think it is to still have those? How did you put it? It was a soft, a soft opening. Stands a bit wrong, but there we go. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where um, you sort of there's some link. I know so and so has worked with so and so. Therefore, you know, as a looking at it from an actor and a musician's point of view, the cold calling of playing for a casting and all that stuff, and you're just another name on spotlight. Obviously, yeah. is not going to have the same effect as oh, well, actually we both know so-and-so and they can tell you I'm, I don't, you know, I eat my breakfast in a sensible way or whatever it is. Are you going to be able to work with me? How much has that played a part in, in the things that you've been able to do? What, just having, the, having a kind of a soft intro to people you really want to work with? Yes, or and I yeah. suppose a bit earlier on in career as well, when you're wanting to to get in a position to do things perhaps as well, working with, you know, getting stuff made or, or working with other people. Yeah, well, I mean, soft intros are always nice because you're kind of, at least for an initial conversation, you're kind of negating an agent, I suppose. Um, especially with short form stuff where there's, you know, you might be paying equity minimum and that's it, you know. None of the three actors in talk radio needed to do talk radio for their financial for their finances nor for their careers mm-hmm. um, so it was always really good to be able to get um a script directly to people um i mean interestingly julia was the first person that we got and we didn't know this at the time but pierce replied within hours and said yes because he was a big fan of julie deacon and always mm-hmm. wanted to work so that so that's great in itself. So, um, and it's and it's quite often the way I think when you if you can get someone that has a bit of notoriety, other actors suddenly go, oh, Julie's doing it. Okay, well this okay, then they kind of take it. Maybe you take it a bit more seriously, perhaps. I don't know. That's the live aid <laughs> thing, isn't it? It's like Bob Geldof calls the Who and says, well, McCartney's doing it, and he wasn't, and then he says, <laughs> Queen are doing it, so you know you don't want to miss out. <laughs> yeah 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 i mean it's and it's a good way of doing it but i mean funnily enough with talk radio that wasn't we we went we went through agents we didn't have any connections at all so we again we just got very very lucky and producer adam did a fantastic job talking to agents of course um yet uh quiet carriage we had a couple of soft intros and, and they kind of got negated the need for the agent and just got a script in front of people who then read it and liked and then it becomes a bit of an easier task when you do because you eventually go through the agent no matter what you know so so that helped um earlier on i suppose getting stuff made i don't know i i think that there you know there are sites like you know you got kind of mandy and shooting people i think mandy used to be called something else i forget what it was um Casting Call Pro was it? Mm. Uh, was that together. Um, yeah, we never. 
I've, I've never really found it difficult to get people to be in stuff. Certainly the last few films have been taking a step up in regards to recognisable talent. Um, but, I, but I actually do think that, funnily enough, I think that talking about that hindsight thing from before, I think that we got those, we initially got Julia for talk radio because of quiet carriage. Yeah. I, I think, I think, you know, I think she might've read the script and then we definitely sent links to the films. And I think she came back and said she enjoyed the film. Didn't mention the script, <laughs> but I think she enjoyed the previous film. So you're like, great. If that, if that, if that's what leads to, to, to her, us having a conversation with her. And she also wanted a, um, I remember she, um, the producer said, um, Julie is interested, but she wants to have a chat to you mm-hmm. first. I remember being super nervous, like terrified of kind of getting to this point and being so close and messing it up. But yep. she was just like, she, she, so basically what I did, <laughs> I, I, I'll, no matter how many times I tell this story, I can feel myself going bright red. Yeah. When I, <laughs> it's all right. It's audio. People. So, so um, producer Adam said, Julia wants to speak to you before she confirms she can do the film. And I was like terrified. I, and I went, I started making notes on a, on a document and then I started writing about, I, start, I went through her filmography. Mm-hmm. I went through the character and the film I'd written and, and went to sort of great lengths explaining why it was great for her, what I loved about her, her back catalogue of films, why I think she should do it. Um, you know, and about the character and about the nuances and about what she can bring to it. And I just, I made pages and pages and pages of notes. And then, and then she called and I was ready to, I was on all cylinders ready to go and I was really nervous. And um, she literally just wanted to know if we were going to be done by five. And that was it. And I was like, <laughs> I've been working myself up for 24 hours. I didn't sleep. Because <laughs> I thought this whole, this conversation, de- you know, define. Yeah, it's going to make or break it. Yeah, yeah. And it was literally, she had an evening event. <laughs> she, wanted to make sure, she wanted to hear it from my mouth <laughs> that we'd be wrapped at that time. And that was it. Um I feel like I maybe haven't answered your question, actually, Rob. I feel like I've just gone off on a <laughs> Julia Deakin tangent. A That's great. Bit. We're happy to hear Julia Deakin tangents. That's no problem. Yeah. And were you able to finish at five? That's the important thing. Yeah, yeah, we were done. So you yeah, weren't there was... at five to five? Like, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that was, she was, we were done early. We, you know, we, we were so, that was our main focus of the day. Um, but I mean, to be fair, we, it was, um, we shot in February or March, maybe late Feb. And, um, we lost the light anyway. Yeah. So we had to be done by like four, <laughs> realistically. So And that's those limit difficult. those limitations again, isn't it? Like focusing minds and everything. Yeah. And we well, we had a what really focused the mind was having a fantastic first AD telling me we were moving on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Regardless regardless of whether we had the shot on, you know what I mean? Like having someone there going, We're we're ten minutes behind, we're twenty minutes behind, we're an hour behind. Come on, we need to get this moving. So that's interesting, actually, going back to that thing of being the writer and the director. At some level, do you need someone who is there kind of being your boss almost? Because it's like, you know, I've written this, I've cast this, I'm directing this. Do you need someone there who's saying, well, yeah, Mr. Big Shot, but you still need to get this done in the next 10 minutes else you're going to lose the light? Yeah, I mean, essentially that's what a first AD 
is there for just to move things along and keep everything on schedule um i've been very lucky having um having adam on set adam is the producer i've worked with for the last three shorts mm-hmm. and one thing that he he does when we shoot is he he's running around putting fires out that i don't know exist until we finish shooting he he completely shields me from everything like i'm a delicate flower you know he he's there to um to allow me essentially to work with a deep in with the actors and and he he tries and it successfully takes everything else away from me so so there are no problems and there, and there is no concern because if i know there's a problem then my mind's going to be on that you know i mean and as for me for me personally anyway i do kind of tend to um tend to want to get involved in everything <laughs> and um and adam just does a great job of allowing me to not stress about stuff on set and and on 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 films i make i'm pretty horizontal to be honest with you i'm pretty relaxed um the entire time but i think that is largely down to um to other people being so great at their jobs and allowing me to to just enjoy the whole process really so yes, in, in in essence, yeah, it is. I wouldn't say people in charge of me. I'd say people um, just giving me enough creative space Freedom. and taking on large bulks of of heavy lifting, so that I'm not, you know, concerned by that stuff at all. It's all the same stuff, isn't it? Like you said, having the space there at home, all these different things. It's it, I saw a John Cleese thing recently where he was talking about creativity. He says a reason that kids can be creative is because they don't have to worry about business or they don't have to worry about dinner. So literally all they can think about is playing. Whereas as soon as you're a bit older, there's schoolwork or there's, you know, mortgages and all these things, which are all just barriers in the way of creativity. And it feels like half of the battle actually is just making that space to do the, to do the thing. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of, I suppose with being an adult and with broader life, you kind of have to, not only create that space, but set your own boundaries and parameters to be able to step out of that space yeah. when things do need to be done. Like I, like when I was, um, so I'm going back now to a previous point, but when I was, when I was making stuff that was hard hitting and was issue led and was, you know, I was, um, when I was doing the, both the domestic abuse um, film and the human trafficking film, I was, often on the phone to survivors of abuse and hearing just like harrowing horrible stories and accounts of of um of you know real life people and i would i would step into my house that evening and bring all that stuff with me yes yeah you know and um and and that's i suppose another reason why comedy it feels so nice because if if i if i bring that work home with me at least I'm just cracking jokes to my wife and testing out material <laughs> and without her realizing that I'm just, I'm, you know, working on a gag that I've been working uh-huh. on for the afternoon or whatever. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think, but I think that come the time when you say, okay, it's five o'clock, it's time yep. to switch that button off in your brain and be present for your loved ones or, you know, fill out the form to send back to the council or take the sofa to the, from the back garden to the front garden to be collected by the council in the morning or whatever it is. <laughs> it's important to, um, to know when to, st- when to stop. Yeah. And, and I think 
that's experience as well, isn't it? Certainly for me, it's like when you're. I think when you start, it's easy to think I need to be thinking about this stuff all the time. If I'm not think, if I'm not literally doing it, then I'm wasting time. But then you sort of learn that even when you're not consciously thinking about this stuff, it's still. It's still happening in your head. And in fact, that's better sometimes. You know, how many great ideas, for me, it's, it's ideas when you're doing the washing up or whatever. Is, and you're sometimes like, no, don't listen to a podcast or the radio. Have nothing. Because that little voice in your head that's all shy might just might just pop up while you're doing the dishes. And you've got to be open to it. And it's exciting. Mm. It's exciting when ideas come from nowhere, when you're, like you say, doing the dishes or walking the dog and you stop mm-hmm. and go. Thank you. That's that's the thing. I just I was trying to work that out two months ago on a different project and it suddenly that's that's the bit that I was missing. So yeah. you can go and make a note and and pat that away to the next day and, and, and you've got something fresh to work with and that's that's really exciting. And that's why I have all these things on here. Mm-hmm. That's why I've got all these ideas because you never know when, when something's gonna just sort of snap into place and and um and you'll get creative juices flowing that you didn't know we're even, we're even working away subconsciously inside. Mm. Great. Okay, Ben, thank you so much. That's been fascinating. Um, just tell people listening in where they might be able to see. I know that Quiet Carriage is available for people to watch now, I think, isn't it? Quiet Carriage is um, on short of the week um, now, and I think the link might be in my um, – tw- I think it's on my Twitter uh, handle. No, it's on my Instagram, I think. Anyway, yeah, it's on short of the week. <laughs> it's called Quiet Carriage. Um, and talk radio is currently on on the festival circuit. I think this week, Bolton Film Festival, then Norwich next month, and it will just kind of be doing its rounds. And it, you know, the great thing about festivals at the moment is they're all, they're all online, so people yeah. can watch it. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah great. Sure. Okay, and if people want to catch up with you, Twitter, Instagram, just remind us of your handles there, if you could. Yeah, it's Ben underscore S underscore Highland. And that's on everything. Well, two things, Twitter and Instagram. (laughs) The two important things. Great. Okay, Ben, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects I'm working on. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.